A government shutdown draws near. House Speaker Republican Mike Johnson unveils a short-term two-step resolution that does not include spending cuts. How Congress is trying to avoid a shutdown coming up on this Monday, November 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, millions of tons of plastic flood the environment each year, but a conference in Kenya is talking about an agreement on solutions. There are those that want the Plastics Treaty to focus on waste collection and recycling. And there are those who say there needs to be a cap on the amount of new plastic that companies can produce. These stories and our latest unsung hero coming up. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. In a first, the U.S. Supreme Court's adopting a code of ethics for its justices amid mounting criticism of gifts and trips from wealthy benefactors to certain justices, such as Justice Clarence Thomas. NPR's Nina Totenberg explains that the code attempts to be relatively specific about what justices can and cannot do, though there's no enforcement mechanism covering what justices are not supposed to do. The code's very specific about financial transactions. You can have a real estate transaction as long as it's not before the court. And, of course, this code reaffirms the commitment to the disclosure provisions that are in the existing code for all judges and that have not been entirely followed in the in the past. And it's very specific about family members, spouses, children, grandchildren, and recusal if one of those has a case before the court or is a lawyer before the court. NPR's Nina Totenberg's full report can be heard later on All Things Considered. Hundreds of patients and staff are trapped in Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. There's no fuel and little water. Israel continues its offensive against Hamas militants in the area. The Israeli military has told staff and patients to evacuate, but as NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports, for many in Al-Shifa and other hospitals, that option now seems impossible. Paul Caney, the logistics coordinator for the charity Doctors Without Borders in Jerusalem, tells NPR the bombardment and fighting around Al-Shifa is so intense that his staff can't get to the hospital, despite being in a building that's only about 200 metres away. Al-Shifa is now in its third day without fuel for power, and Caney says ambulances can't reach the trapped patients and staff. Their lives are in peril, and that includes ICU babies. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says incubators for 37 premature babies have stopped working because of the lack of fuel. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. In reaction to the threat facing the Gaza hospital, President Biden says... The hospital must be protected. Though Biden supported humanitarian pauses, he has stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. An experimental treatment is showing the first hints that gene editing might offer a safe and effective way to fight the nation's leading killer, heart disease. Here's NPR's Rob Stein. Researchers at a Boston biotech company say they have produced the first evidence that gene editing can safely and effectively cut high cholesterol. Verve Therapeutics says the results of the first 10 patients who volunteered for a study testing gene editing indicates the approach is safe and can effectively lower cholesterol. The study is being conducted on people with a genetic predisposition to very high cholesterol, but the hope is that gene editing could provide an alternative way to reduce cholesterol in anyone. Much more research is needed, however. Rob Stein, NPR News. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. New Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation Monica Tibbetts-Nutt wants to incentivize cities and towns to build more housing. Tibbetts-Nutt has served in the role on an interim basis for a couple of months. Today, Governor Maura Healey officially named her transportation secretary. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Tibbetts-Nutt says kickstarting regional rail, repairing roads and bridges, and fixing slow zones on the T are among her top priorities. She told WBUR's Radio Boston, cities and towns that allow more housing development will get first dibs on big projects. We need to make sure that we're making the investments in the communities that want to build housing. We are going to put the money as DOT in the places that have done the things that need to be done and where the residents are actually living. Tibbetts Nutt says it's important that low- and middle-income people be able to afford to live in places with good public transportation options. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. A plan to remove some historic markers in Concord is on hold. The wording on the markers is said to be offensive to some indigenous people. The signs were put in place nearly a century ago to mark Concord's 300th anniversary. The Concord Historic District Commission voted last month to remove the signs, but there's a new proposal to cover them instead. The commission will consider the options this week. The city of Medford announced plans today to build its first fully accessible playground. It'll be constructed at the McGlynn School next spring. Plans call for an inclusive wheelchair swing, a fully accessible outdoor classroom, and a multi-use field. Patriots coach Bill Belichick is not tipping his hand about the future of Mac Jones as quarterback of the team. Jones was benched near the end of yesterday's game and replaced by backup Bailey Zappi. At a press conference today, Belichick was asked who will start at quarterback in the Patriots' next game. Yeah, we just got back from Germany here, so, you know, we'll work through everything. There's, we'll look at everything all the way across the board, not specifically any one position, just, just try to look at everything, do the best we can here going forward. The Patriots lost to the Colts 10-6 to in Frankfurt. New England is now 2-8 and eight on the season. 43 degrees in the Boston area, plenty of clouds out there this afternoon and this evening. Could see a few snow flurries before 10 o'clock tonight, nothing that should last on the ground, though. Overnight lows about 34, then for tomorrow, clouds in the morning, some sunshine later on, highs in the mid-40s. Again, 43 in Boston at 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the NPR Wine Club where members can explore wines from around the world. And every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism, available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A spending plan is more than just a financial document. It's essentially a statement of values, right? Spelling out what you're willing to invest in and what you are not. Over the weekend, the new Speaker of the House unveiled his plan to fund the government. The full House is expected to vote on it tomorrow. And if Congress doesn't agree on something by the end of this week, the government will shut down. Well, Speaker Mike Johnson's proposal would temporarily extend funding for some federal agencies until late January and others through early February. But one of the most surprising things about the proposal is what it leaves out military aid for Ukraine and Israel. Susan Glasser has written in The New Yorker about the Biden administration's effort to arm Ukraine's military, and she's here to talk about this Republican proposal. Good to have you back. Thank you so much. We don't know whether this plan will pass. Some Republicans have already come out against it. But are you surprised that the Speaker of the House would propose a package that does not include military support for two major U.S. allies, Ukraine and Israel? 
Well, it is pretty remarkable. But, uh, you know, remember that this new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, uh, is not only the least experienced Speaker of the House in 140 years, but has a record of voting against uh, military aid for Ukraine ever since the Russian invasion in uh, February of last year. So, you know, it's consistent with his own personal beliefs. And more strikingly, it, it, it reflects, I think, the direction of travel where the House Republican conference, which is much Trumpier, if you will, much more part of the kind of America first neo-isolationist wing of the Republican Party than even the Senate Republicans who've remained committed uh, to supporting Ukraine and its fight. Well, the White House has been pushing back against this proposal. Here's what uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said at a briefing today. The United States national interest will be deeply harmed if we are not able to secure and sustain funding for Israel, Ukraine, the Indo-Pacific and the border. Now, as you say, the speaker has opposed Ukraine funding from very early on. But but is there something to the Republican argument that after more than a year of fighting in Ukraine, there needs to be some kind of plan for how this ends as the U.S. keeps handing over billions of dollars? Well, I would say that what's very striking is just the abrupt uh, reversals and the lack of ability for the United States right now to make and honor long-term commitments to its foreign policy. President Biden from last year on has said that the United States would be supporting Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes. But in reality, uh, our politics makes it uh, almost impossible to make that kind of commitment. Donald Trump is not only the Republican frontrunner for 2024, but were he to come back to office, I don't think there's anyone who thinks that the United States would maintain its commitment uh, to Ukraine. So that's one major complicating factor is that the U.S. is a superpower, but... Oh, it sounds like your line just dropped. We're going to see if we can get you back. We're talking to Susan Glasser about the Republican proposal from the House Speaker, which would uh, fund the government but not include funding for uh, the military efforts in Ukraine and Israel. Susan Glasser of The New Yorker, do we have you back on the line or have we just lost you? Yeah. Oh, we've got you. Great. Um, So you were saying the U.S. can no longer be trusted to uphold its long-term commitments. What does that mean broadly geopolitically if America's allies can no longer count on total backing from the people in Congress who control the purse strings. Well, I think it's a very significant factor, uh, really, in international politics today, Ari. I just spent uh, a week in Berlin uh, earlier this month. And, you know, this is what the, the German government and other Western allies of the United States are very concerned about, is, uh, you know, the the long-term viability of their partnership with the United States. Obviously, Donald Trump would have a very different policy toward Germany in particular, NATO in general, not just Ukraine and Russia. So I think it's the inconstancy of the American superpower that is its own geopolitical risk right now. And just briefly, uh, there's now a delay on your line, but I wonder if you could say what this would mean for the military effort in Ukraine and Israel. What would it mean for those wars if this package were to pass? Well, you know, uh, I noticed Bloomberg quoting a a Pentagon spokesperson the other day saying there's only $1 billion left in the U.S. military assistance to Ukraine. Ukraine is still in the middle of an ongoing counteroffensive against uh, Russian uh, invaders. So it's very significant uh, if the U.S. just runs out of steam to support Ukraine. Susan Glasser of The New Yorker, thank you so much. Thank you. You might remember this public service announcement involving an egg and a frying pan. This is drugs. 
This is your brain on drugs. I totally remember that one. For decades, kids were told to just say no to drugs, but research has long shown that this approach alone doesn't work. And now, overdose deaths among teenagers have skyrocketed, largely due to the highly potent opioid known as fentanyl. As Lee Gaines from member station WFYI reports, experts say there is a better way to teach students about drugs, and the need is more urgent than ever. So as I go through this, I'll show you some slides, of course. But if you have any questions at any point in time, always just feel free to ask. Cameron McNeely stands at the front of a lecture hall at Perry Meridian High School in Indianapolis. He's giving a presentation called, This is Not About Drugs. That sounds pretty ironic. McNeely is an educator with the nonprofit Overdose Lifeline. So I don't want you to get the idea that we are talking about choice. Yes or no, well, I won't I use drugs. McNeely explains that addiction is a disease, how different drugs affect the body, and that about 93,000 people lost their lives to an overdose in 2020. Okay, so let me ask you another question before I move on. He asks which drugs students think caused the most overdoses. Specific drug. Crack. Crack, okay. Heroin. Okay, lots of good guesses here. None of the students got the right answer. Fentanyl, a drug that's killing more and more teens every year. In fact, the number of teen overdose deaths related to fentanyl nearly tripled from 2019 to 2021. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Many died from taking fentanyl-laced counterfeit pills. Experts say drug education could help save lives when it's done right. We know that from years of research, just saying, no, don't do this, don't take this drug, does not work. That's Bonnie Halpern-Felsher of Stanford University. She studies health-related decision-making among adolescents and young adults. She says a better strategy is to give students the facts. Here is what that sounds like in Cameron McNeely's presentation. So opioids work, they're designed to slow our bodies down. Slower nervous systems down, slower respiratory system down, right? Slower breathing down. McNeely explains what an overdose looks like and how you can save someone's life with naloxone, an opioid overdose reversal medicine often sold under the brand name Narcan. But Narcan buys time, which is the most important thing I have in an overdose. This lesson is a far cry from the drug education some listeners may remember, like the D.A.R.E. program, which began in the 1980s. It told kids to just say no to drugs, a message that was repeated in television PSAs. The bottom line is stay away from drugs, but do it because you care about yourself. And cheesy songs like this one from crime dog Scruff McGruff. It is clear that just saying no is not sufficient. That's Nora Volkoff. She's the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She says the drug education of the past wasn't honest with teens, like exaggerating the risks of cannabis use. It was taken to an extreme because a lot of people know others that take marijuana and they are functioning and they don't see any evidence of field effects. But now teens are dying after taking pills they thought were Adderall or Percocet, but turn out to be fentanyl-laced counterfeits. They actually taught us when we were children, if you cry wolf too many times, when the wolf really comes, no one is paying attention. And this is, I fear, where we are a little bit with the fentanyl. Volkov says there's evidence to suggest high-quality drug education can prevent drug use. But that's not what many students are getting. Halpern Felsher at Stanford University is trying to change that. 
her lab has a comprehensive curriculum for high schoolers called Safety First. It addresses both the risks and the benefits of drugs. We cannot lie, we cannot exaggerate to teens. The curriculum explains doctors can use opioids to treat pain, but if you use them improperly or take someone else's medication, you run the risk of becoming addicted or overdosing. Halpern Felsher says it's important to tell teens not to use drugs at all. But if they are using or if they're in situations where they might be used, we are just trying to keep them safe. It's an approach known as harm reduction. It includes strategies like don't mix drugs and test them for things like fentanyl beforehand. It also covers how to take care of someone who is overdosing. They know how to put somebody into the position on their side so that way they can breathe and they don't vomit and choke on their vomit. Halpern Felsher knows that some people might interpret harm reduction as encouraging teens to use drugs, but she says that's a misperception. The most important piece of this curriculum is not to use. Halpern Felsher says this curriculum isn't a cure-all. Educators, families, and communities need to start having honest conversations about drug use. And until we do, you know, just having a 50-minute class on fentanyl is not going to be the sole defining moment for anybody. But she says it's a start. For NPR News, I'm Lee Gaines in Indianapolis. There's a bright new object shining in the night sky, and you only need binoculars to see it. But it's not your typical heavenly body. Nope. Earlier this month, NASA astronauts Laurel O'Hara and Jasmine Mogbelli were doing repairs at the International Space Station when a tool bag accidentally slipped off into space. This isn't the first time astronauts have lost track of something up there. In 2006, NASA astronaut Piers Sellers was using a spatula to apply heat-resistant slime to the Discovery Space Shuttle. And he reportedly told his fellow astronauts, That was my favorite spatch. Don't tell the other spatulas. (laughs) The spatch burned up in Earth's atmosphere about four months later, and this tool bag will likely meet the same fate. But for now, you can see it orbiting Earth using just a pair of binoculars. It's a little ahead of the space station, which you can locate using an online tool from NASA. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's all things considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a woman who lived in New York City Hotel for decades was a mystery to those around her, yet she returned small favors with extreme kindness. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, showcasing the all-new 2024 Subaru Outback. Available now, citysidesubaru.com. And Greener You, working throughout New England to integrate climate action into the entire construction process for a fossil-free future. Learn more at greeneru.com. Ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow started the week gaining a little less than two-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ finished on the downside. The S&P lost about a tenth of a percent. The NASDAQ dropped two-tenths of a percent. A Middleborough-based marijuana dispensary and producer is releasing a cannabis-infused cranberry sauce just in time for Thanksgiving. Suncrafted Cannabis says the infused sauce made from local cranberries will make for a relaxing family holiday. One tablespoon of the stuff has five milligrams of THC, a standard dose for recreational users. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more 
at tbf.org. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Lots of clouds around today. Could have some drizzle or even snow flurries early tonight, then cloudy, just a little bit above freezing overnight. Tomorrow starting up cloudy, then sunshine should move in around 46 degrees for a high, a gusty wind tomorrow. 43 now in Boston at 421. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Around the world, plastic waste is spiraling out of control. This week in Kenya, countries are gathering to work on a U.N. treaty to deal with the issue. NPR's Julia Simon reports the fossil fuel industry wants to have a big say in solutions. Around 400 million tons of plastic goes into the environment each year. Bethany Carney Almroth is professor at University of Gothenburg in Sweden. She puts the problem this way. Plastic is in every single environment on the entire planet, from the deepest oceans to the atmosphere to human bodies. It's everywhere. Around 150 countries are meeting in Nairobi to figure out how to deal with this. They don't all agree, says Charles Goddard at Economist Impact. He says on one side... There are those that want the Plastics Treaty to focus on the waste collection and recycling. But recycling has never really worked. Less than 10% of plastic is recycled globally. It's energy intensive and lots of plastic waste can't be recycled at all. So Goddard says on the other side are countries, environmental groups, and scientists pushing another argument. To concentrate on the life cycle of plastics, that includes the production of plastics. Basically, They want to cap the amount of new plastic companies produce. Goddard says not everybody's a fan of that. Unsurprisingly, those countries and those companies that are engaged in the production of uh, plastics and in the production of fossil fuels. Most plastics are made from planet-heating fossil fuels like oil and gas. Demand for oil for cars and trucks is projected to fall as people buy more electric vehicles. That's why many in the oil industry see plastics and other petrochemicals as key for the future of their business. Marcos Orellana was appointed by the UN to monitor toxics and human rights. He says industry is pushing recycling-based solutions at the treaty talks to take the focus away from cutting new plastic production. It signals an attempt, one would say, of escaping strict controls and the reduction of plastic and instead uh, trying to keep business as usual. Orellana says plastic credits are one proposed solution that would allow companies to keep doing business as usual. It's being discussed at the negotiations. And basically, plastic credits would allow companies to help pay for projects that remove waste or recycle. 
Vera is a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit working on plastic credits, and they're at these treaty negotiations. Vera spokesperson Joel Finkelstein says cutting new plastic production is important, but the plastic credits could help funnel much-needed money to waste removal and recycling projects. It's not like there's some big pool of money existing to clean this up, right? Vera was founded in 2007, and it's known for its work with carbon offsets. Its founding members included trade groups that represented major oil companies, among other corporations. When asked about these ties, Finkelstein says it makes sense to talk to big emitting companies that want to take action on climate. I don't think that's a smoking gun. It's something we're proud of, that this is a way to unlock finance. As for plastics, Finkelstein says he thinks Vera should work aggressively with anyone on solutions, while also pushing for integrity. I question whether people would be willing to let plastic stay in the environment for the moral good of not engaging with people they don't like. I don't think we have the time or the ability to wait for that. In Kenya this week, how to reduce new plastic and recycled plastics will be central to the negotiations. So will questions over the role of governments and industries. Winnie Lau leads a project at the Pew Charitable Trusts to keep plastics out of oceans. She says cutting pollution will require a lot of different solutions and plenty of oversight. If you don't have the right accountability mechanism in place, they could be designed to not work at all and sometimes could make the problem worse. The U.N. hopes to have the plastic treaty all finalized next year. Julia Simon, NPR News. And NPR's Michael Copley contributed reporting. The late-night TV landscape will change significantly early next year when comic Taylor Tomlinson debuts as host of a new show called After Midnight. It'll air weeknights on CBS after The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Colbert's also an executive producer on After Midnight. And when he announced Tomlinson's new hosting gig on The Late Show, Tomlinson admitted that as a rising comic who just turned 30, she's not a household name yet. So if you don't know who I am, don't worry, I barely know myself. Here to talk about how Tomlinson's rise might change the face of late-night television is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hey, Eric. Hi. Hi. So I have never personally heard of Taylor Tomlinson until this very interview with you. <laughs> so just tell us, who is she and where might people already know her from? Sure. Well, if you're not a comedy nerd, you might not know who she is. She's a rising comedy star with two well-regarded stand-up specials on Netflix. She's been doing stand-up comedy since she was 16 years old, and wow. she's appeared on these podcasts by older, more established comics like uh, Pete Holmes or Neil Brennan, who kind of signaled that she was a legit, funny stand-up. And choosing her makes a lot of sense for CBS because the network is worried about how ratings are dropping for late night shows and in particular, young people tuning out. And she's also gained a large following through videos of her stand-up posted on social media outlets like Instagram and TikTok. And we've got a clip. Let's listen. My college boyfriend was sleeping with sex workers behind my back or prostitutes if you're old and don't know that word's not okay to use anymore. <laughs> Sometimes older crowd members can get confused. Is that what my granddaughter does on Instagram? And you're like, no, no, no. She's just hot. That's a fab fit fun box. That's a different. Yeah, and yeah, I had to look up what a fab fit fun box is. But what is she, that? Okay. <laughs> she knows social media. She can tell jokes that cover a wide generational span. She ticks a lot of boxes for CBS. Okay, I guess and it's that's good box. to hear. <laughs> I mean, does it also matter that she's a woman, Eric? I mean, given all the mm. Johns and Stevens hosting late night shows these days. 
Oh, for sure. I mean, depending on who's chosen as the permanent host for The Daily Show, Tomlinson could be the only woman hosting a major late-night show on TV next year. I mean, she'll be debuting as many shows with female hosts like Samantha Bee and Z-Way and Amber Ruffin have either been cut back or canceled, and she's likely going to be the youngest late-night host on TV, testing if these shows can still appeal to young people who have largely turned away from traditional broadcast or cable TV for online platforms. Right. Well, I also heard that After Midnight won't be like a typical late night talk show, right? Yeah, it's going to be a new version of a game show called At Midnight that aired for a while on Comedy Central. It basically features three comics playing these social media themed games. And, you know, again, for CBS, this makes sense. It's cheap to produce. The subject matters about the online platforms that young people are already using. And the games will be easy to put up online for viral videos. Wait, but I have to ask, I mean, what does this say about the future of late night that CBS had the chance to create a new talk show and instead just revive an old game show. Well, I got to say, that's what worries me as a fan of late night TV. I mean, rather than figure out how to make something new and different, they recycled an old idea. And there's a lot of producers on this project, including Colbert's manager and his wife. And humor by committee can be tough. (laughs) You know, I just hope when the show debuts early next year, they find some new dimensions to this idea and chart a new course for late night entertainment because the late night genre really needs one. Totally. That is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, a program called Enough asks teenagers to write 10-minute plays about gun violence and then perform them around the country. It's turned out to be an act of commentary and healing. That's still to come. Tonight, the Celtics try to make it three straight wins. They take on the New York Knicks at the Garden. Celtics are so far undefeated at home. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com and Semester Off. An education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John Davis and his wife Margot are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can too at WBUR.org legacy. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In the Middle East, hundreds of patients and staff are trapped in the largest hospital in northern Gaza as Israel continues to attack Hamas by air and ground. Israel has told staff and patients to flee the area near the Al-Shifa hospital, but the fighting is so intense that everyone there is trapped. Dr. Tanya Haj-Hassan is a pediatrician who works with the aid group Doctors Without Borders. She says in addition to being trapped, they are running out of water, oxygen, and electricity. We're told anyone who tries to leave is targeted. Anyone who moves inside um, is targeted. Um, The intensive care unit was targeted twice in the last 24 hours. 
There are, are 28 critically ill patients there. Two of them passed away overnight. There's no access to oxygen after the oxygen supply was hit. The World Health Organization is once again appealing for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza where 13 of the area's 19 hospitals have been damaged or forced to close. In New York, one of the busiest passenger rail routes in the U.S. is closed for a second day. Amtrak says there are safety concerns with a building located above the track between New York City and Albany. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. Officials in New York City found structural problems with the parking garage located above Amtrak's rail line in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood over the weekend. Amtrak says the building is privately owned. Service has been disrupted between the city's Penn Station and the state capital in Albany. Some passengers have been able to ride an alternate train route via Grand Central Station. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said on social media that city engineers have been on the scene working with Amtrak and the property owners to ensure safety for rail passengers and pedestrians. He said emergency orders have been issued to allow quick repairs. Amtrak isn't saying when it expects regular commuter service to be restored. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The state of Massachusetts hopes to get hundreds of migrants living in emergency shelters authorized for work over the next few weeks. State officials in the Department of Homeland Security opened a clinic today to help expedite the often protracted process. Kate Freilich works directly with immigrants living in state shelters as part of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. She says getting new arrivals into the workforce will ease pressure on the shelter system. And that will lead to them being able to find stable housing outside of the shelter system. We are all aware that we have a housing shortage and affordability crisis in Massachusetts, and that is very real. And so other supports are going to be needed as well. Last week, the state reported it ran out of emergency shelter space and began a wait list process for families. Dozens of Brandeis University students walked out of class today. They were supporting seven protesters who were arrested on campus Friday during a pro-Palestine rally. The university has said the crowd used a language it classified as hate speech, Protesters were charged with disorderly conduct, unlawful assembly, and assault and battery on an officer. The seven pleaded not guilty in court today and were released. Emerson College's resident assistants are working to form a union. This morning, the group of RAs delivered a letter to the administration that asks for voluntary recognition of the union. The students say they're hoping for more compensation, better workloads and on-call responsibilities, and better communication channels with Emerson leadership. An Emerson spokesperson told WBUR the college is not yet ready to comment on the matter. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, taking care of business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And the Lyric Stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th, lyricstage.com. Some drizzle or even some snow flurries early tonight, then cloudy, just a little bit above freezing overnight. Tomorrow should start up with clouds, then sunshine should move in for the bulk of the day, around 46 degrees for a high, a gusty wind around. Wednesday, sunny, windy, up around 48. 43 now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including homeless shelters, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We're continuing our series, The Unmarked Graveyard, from Radio Diaries, where we're untangling mysteries from America's largest public cemetery. Neil Harris was last seen in Inwood, New York, on December 12, 2014. Hi, There were thousands of questions. Where's his family? Where's his people? You can't help but wonder what her life has been. The Belvedere Hotel is in the heart of New York City's theater district. Many of its guests come to see the sights, take in a show, but a few dozen people call the Belvedere home. Decades ago, they came to New York, rented rooms, and as the hotel changed hands over the years, they stayed on because it was rent-stabilized. One of them was an 82-year-old woman from Japan who lived a private and quiet life in room 208. Radio Diaries brings us her story. Welcome to the Belvedere. My name is Ali Mahmoud, and I work at the Belvedere Hotel in New York City. Sako Hasegawa lived here for at least 40, 50 years, and she lived alone. She was a very sweet lady. She would stop by, always say hello to me. My name is Jerry. I've been a bellhop at the Belvedere Hotel for 22 years. I would have a morning shift on Fridays and Saturdays. We always open the door for her. She would look up with a smile, a huge smile. You know, she was always bowing, saying hello, 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 hello. When she spoke, she spoke with an accent, but she was able to convey herself very clearly. Every time I ran into her in a hallway or in the lobby, she said, nice to see you. She actually meant it. If you wrote her a rent receipt, for example, you would magically find a hand-drawn card next day on your desk. Someone took 45 minutes to make that card. Her handwriting was beautiful, like poetry, like, well, I don't know. I've never seen something like that. One time, I said hello, and she just waved and rushed into the elevator with a little shopping cart. So she came and gave me a letter. Hello, Jerry. I, I do want to apologize that I didn't get to say hello to you correctly. You know, and it's just how bad she felt. And they touched me. There's some tenants here that don't got nobody to talk to. Nobody say, have a good day, or nobody say, happy holidays. Nobody say, I love you. Nobody say, I hate you. You know? <laughs> I always saw her alone. Alone yet happy. Perhaps to each their own. You see such a person and you can't help but wonder what her life has been. My name is Renee, and I live here in Belvedere Hotel. When Miss Isigo was still alive, this is where she lives, room 208, and I live in 207, across the hall. As far as the nearest neighbor, I am the only one who she talks to, and she knows my name. 
doesn't say so much, you know, except, you know, the usual greeting, how are you, weather is nice, I'm gonna get my mail. <laughs> I always play this, you know. This is the, my piano, and I play it in the evening most often. She knows when I play the piano, because she hears it. She tells me, you know, it's a good thing you played the piano last night. How nice is it? Those things, and very gracious. My name is Nancy Boyce, and I have lived in this building at the Belvedere for the past 41 years. So, um, this is the living room and the bedroom. It's just one, one big room. He's a cause room, just like mine. This is the hallway, and then this is a depressing kitchen. Yeah, it's very small, the size of a closet. I have my hot plate and refrigerator. At least we had our own little kitchen, tiny, our own private bathroom. That's what was important to me. People who don't know, or like tourists or friends, they are amazed. Wow, you live in a hotel, in the heart of the city especially. You know, it's a big deal for them. But to me, having lived here for such a long time, for decades, you know, I can't stand this apartment. At the end of the day, I feel lucky that I have my family and a wide circle of friends. But I see a lot of older people, like Hisako, they're all alone. One Friday, I realized that she didn't, she didn't come down. And it bothered me. So I like asked upper management to please check up on her because we've had tenants that passed away in the hotel. When I came in from work, everybody was on the hallway. The police and then the investigators were all there. And then they started asking questions, questions. I said, what happened? She died. She fell from the bed. I cannot believe that she died that way. An investigator was telling me, oh, you're the next neighbor. Okay, do you know her? anybody who knows her? My gosh, after all these years, I never, I never saw her with anybody. I wish if she only knocked at my door, you know. I should have asked her. They think that you are uh, intruding or something, but no, I, that is, that's a misconception. I think you should ask. New York is a place for the dreamers. And we all come from somewhere to leave and leave your families behind and, and come here and make a new life. and. One would hope that you'd find love and meet people and have a family and maybe not end up alone in a hotel room somewhere.
Very little is known about Hisako Hasegawa. She was born in Japan in 1934 and probably came to the U.S. in the 1970s. And after she died at the Belvedere in 2016, she was buried in Plot 379 on Hart Island. This story was produced by Nellie Gillis and the team at Radio Diaries. You can hear more stories from the unmarked graveyard on the Radio Diaries podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Over the weekend, 22 people were injured in mass shootings across the United States. There have been more mass shootings than days so far this year. A new project called Enough encourages high school students to write plays about gun violence. It's a competition, and as NPR's Netta Ulibi reports, the six winning plays were recently produced at dozens of theaters around the country. A cop is chasing a kid, a young black teenager, down a deserted street. This is a play, a rehearsal at one of the top professional theaters in Washington, D.C., one of nearly 60 in the U.S. simultaneously staging the winning plays. This one has a twist. When the cop says, freeze, both characters suddenly find themselves unable to move. Enter a little girl. It becomes clear she has somehow frozen them in place. Where's my gun? Kid, that is a dangerous weapon. You need to give it to me. I don't have it. I'm not allowed to touch things like that, and you can't have a gun either. We're playing freeze tag. Well, how do we stop playing freeze tag? The young playwright, Nayara Bell, was inspired in part by Trayvon Martin's murder. I have a younger brother who is 15 years old. You know, sometimes I just go out and I just like, God, just watch over my brother. There is a lot of anger in these plays towards us adults, letting it go on for so long. Mike Cody created this playwriting contest after the Parkland School shootings five years ago. He was working in Chicago as a director and just thought, what play can speak to this violence? Then he realized it had not been written yet. So he wrote a one-pager describing the project and sent it to everyone he knew. Three years later, the annual contest now gets hundreds of submissions. The plays are only 10 minutes long. They cannot show gun violence on stage. Plays about gun violence are about people. It's not about necessarily the moment of violence. One play this year is set in a 911 call center. Another's a biting satire. School administrators try to prevent gun violence by promoting what they call School Kindness Week. But then there's a school shooting. And now these principal and vice principal and this teacher, they're going to do School Kindness Month because week wasn't going to do the trick. And also they're in their Kevlar vests and holding heavy artillery. Cody says some of the people now deeply involved with Enough were not theater people to begin with. They were activists who had lost children to guns. Working on these plays in their hometowns has opened new conversations. And it's been a way that they can process and heal, and heal on this issue. And and when I made that one-pager, just out of frustration and hope that people would do this project, I had no idea that people would use it in that way. Like, no idea. I'm in pursuit of an African-American male. Back at the theater in Washington, D.C., the actors run through a scene with their director, who works professionally with young performers. How did that feel? How did that read-through feel? I actually felt scared. 
The director, whose name is Maurizio Pita, then turns to the little girl, whose character can freeze people. It turns out the cop was chasing her brother. You know when you're upset? Yes. And you know when something is so intense and then you're holding it in and then you're holding it in and then you explode? This is the moment where you're telling exactly what you want. Guess who has the power here? That's right. Putting young people in touch with their power. That's Act One. Act Two belongs to them. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Doctors Without Borders tells us what's happening at the hospitals in Gaza. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Tonight, the Celtics tried to make it three straight wins. They take on the New York Knicks at the Garden. Celts are so far undefeated at home. Tip-off time is set for 7.30. Radiolab comes to City Space Friday, December 8th for an immersive multimedia event exploring the history of cassette tapes and how they changed the world. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. This is WBUR. Some clouds around tonight. Tomorrow, clouds early, then sunshine emerging later on. It's 4.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com and Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. I'm Robin Young. Are you finding yourself supporting one side in the war between Israel and Hamas, demonizing the other side, and not liking yourself for it? How to find empathy in a time of hate? Also, Thanksgiving is a little over a week away. Here in our resident chef, Kathy Gunst, has tips and how does she do it? New side dishes. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. For more than a quarter century, the Morehouse School of Medicine has held a conference named for Henrietta Lacks. She was a young black mother who died in 1951 and whose cells were harvested without permission. Her story was told in the book The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. But a lesser-known figure in that history is a black oncologist who was pivotal in bringing Lacks's contribution to light. NPR's Walter Ray Watson has this remembrance. Before there was a best-selling book, a movie, or conferences, there was Dr. Roland Patillo. He was the first person to utter the phrase, thank you, Henrietta. That's Rebecca Sklute, author of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And he was also the first person to ever say, I'm sorry for your suffering to members of her family. He was the first person to recognize that they were suffering. Since the 1960s, Dr. Patillo treated patients and worked in labs. George Guy mentored him at Johns Hopkins. Guy was the biologist who cultivated Lax's cells in 1951. From Guy, Patillo learned deeply about HeLa, 
the first successful human cell line to grow outside the body. Patillo became a kind of gatekeeper to the Lax family. When Rebecca Sklute reached him about writing her book, I thought I was writing a book about Henrietta and the cells. He grilled the writer. Over several phone calls, they talked about health disparities, race in America, and what the Lax family had endured. She got homework. Once cleared to meet the daughter, Deborah, Sklute geared up to write a far more complicated story, largely because of Patillo. The book was a bestseller in 2010. An HBO movie in 2017 starred Oprah Winfrey as Deborah Lax and Rose Byrne as Rebecca Sklute. When I finish this, do you want me to send it to you or do you want me to come down and read it? Only certain parts. Been thinking about going back to school. Dr. Patillo has really kept the story of the Henrietta Lacks HeLa cell alive. Dr. Daniel Ford runs the Institute of Clinical and Translational Research at Johns Hopkins. After learning about the book's release, they launched the Henrietta Lacks Memorial Lecture Series. It was an opportunity for outreach. They took it. The Lacks family was welcomed, scholarships awarded. Rebecca Sklute was guest speaker and Ford invited Dr. Roland Patillo as well. I really struck up a long-term friendship with him. He has come to every symposium he could until COVID made us virtual, and even then he participated. Roland Patillo started a forum in honor of Lax many years before Hopkins. The Gila Women's Health Symposium at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta was likely the first to raise awareness of the Lax story and spotlight research and health disparities. It turned 25 last year. Dr. Cheryl Franklin is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Morehouse School. He was just a gentle giant in the truest sense of those words. Franklin, like many of her colleagues, remembers Patillo as a mentor whose empathy was always on display with patients, faculty, and students. HeLa cells are instrumental in the development of countless medical breakthroughs, from a vaccine for polio to most recently playing a role fighting COVID-19. Dr. Patillo pushed for gratitude for Lax, but he did more. Pat O'Flynn Patillo was married to her husband for 27 years. Speaking from her suburban Atlanta home, she says he worked with the HeLa cell line, but started two more in his career. Dr. Patillo always talked about his JAR, J-A-R, cell line, and also his Caskey cell line. The Caskey cell line, like the HeLa cell line, contributed to the human papillomavirus vaccine in use today. Pat Patillo marvels at all that he did and recalls her husband's struggle with the illness that claimed his life last May at 89. I think only as I have seen him with Parkinson's and seeing him locked in the disease when his mind was still so clear and so brilliant and so ready still to work. Last week, the 26th annual HeLa Symposium was held in Atlanta. You know, behind every person is someone else pushing them along. The first without Dr. Roland Patillo. Walter Ray Watson, NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Tia Rhiannon. One hot afternoon decades ago, Rhiannon was driving her old VW bus down the highway. When she rolled down her window to let in some fresh air, her car registration paper blew off the sun visor and onto the floor. As she leaned down to get it, she accidentally pulled the steering wheel to the left. 
and when I sat back up again with my eyes faced forward, I had drifted into oncoming traffic. In panic, I overcorrected. My van rolled three times and flung me onto the asphalt. You were driving behind me that day, saw the accident, and stopped to help. You were there when I came to, lying in the middle of the road, in shock and bleeding from a train wreck of injuries. I remember you as a man in his late 20s, maybe, gentle manner, soothing voice, kind hands. If you told me your name, I'm sorry, but I don't recall it. I do recall you telling me you were a medical student. You stayed with me until the ambulance got there. You covered me with a blanket and gave me emergency first aid, including, apparently, putting a tourniquet on my left arm above where I'd mangled it so badly. As reality cut in, I looked you in the eye and said, I really effed myself up, didn't I? At the hospital in Vallejo, the ER doctor spent hours picking all the shards of windshield out of my arm, then installing three dozen stitches. One of them told me the next day that if not for the tourniquet, I'd almost certainly have bled to death before the paramedics arrived. If by some serendipity you see or hear this story and recognize yourself, thanks for your massive gesture of kindness and compassion. I'm sorry it took me four decades to say that. The idea of making an unsung heroes recording didn't occur to me until recently. When someone dear to me died unexpectedly, reminding me once again how fleeting life can be. I will always live with these ragged scars etched into my forearm, but I live because of you. As for any other Good Samaritans, please consider this a pay-it-forward note of appreciation from the strangers you helped who, for whatever reason, couldn't thank you themselves. Tia Rhiannon lives in Santa Rosa, California. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple insurers side by side, including options that offer same day approval. Learn more at policygenius.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Monday afternoon. Plenty of clouds around this evening. We could see a few snow flurries before 10 o'clock tonight. Nothing that should stick, though. Overnight lows about 34. Tomorrow rising to the mid-40s with clouds in the morning before skies clear by the afternoon. 41 degrees in Boston at 459. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The fighting between Israel and Hamas in Gaza City has created a humanitarian crisis at the city's main hospital. Patients uh, are piling up uh, on the floor because there's no enough space. Surgeons are doing surgeries without anesthesia. We'll have the latest on the situation there coming up on this Monday, November 13th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, 85% of Americans say it's a bad time to buy a house. So who is buying in the current market? Also, the all-girl band Ace of Cups hit it big some 50 years ago. Then they disbanded and got on with their lives. But now they're making music again in their third act. I think there is new possibilities there to really make that last third of your life really as good as it can be and not to remember the old things of the past about what an old person should do, should be, should look like. We'll hear from them coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The ongoing fighting between Israel and Hamas continues to claim the lives of civilians and also is forcing thousands to flee from areas near hospitals in northern Gaza. Those areas had been perceived as somewhat safe, but as NPR's Ayo Batrawi reports, as fighting intensified, that is no longer the case. The UN Relief Agency says there are still hundreds of thousands of people in the north, um, but there were some who were allowed to come south. Tens of thousands did heed those orders over the past few days, but the Palestinians say that the south is not that much safer. Of the more than 11 thousand people killed in this war, including more than 4,500 children. At least 40% of these deaths were from airstrikes in the south where people have been forced to flee, according to health officials in Gaza. One of the areas, Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, which has been without electricity and water since Saturday. Israel maintains Hamas fighters are hiding in tunnels beneath the hospital. The House of Representatives is expected to vote tomorrow on a plan to keep the federal government open past Friday. But NPR's Eric McDaniel says Speaker Mike Johnson's stopgap bill is already facing defections from his fellow Republicans. The bill is meant to buy lawmakers more time. The proposal funds some parts of the government, including the Departments of Agriculture, Energy and Transportation, through January 19th, and funds the rest of the government, including defense and the remaining industries, through February 2nd. They hope to use the extension to pass the full suite of 12 federal budget bills instead of relying on short-term extensions of current government funding levels, which House conservatives don't like. But whether this bill can pass is an open question. The Biden administration called it unserious, and congressional Democrats have greeted it skeptically. Eric McDaniel, NPR 
News, Washington. The Supreme Court is being given a first-ever code of conduct, this after being rocked by revelations of undisclosed trips and gifts from wealthy benefactors to some justices. Agreed to by all nine justices on the court, it does not appear to impose significant new requirements, but instead is more of a codification of existing principles. Liberal critics of the court were not satisfied. An NPR investigation has found thousands of U.S. military service members and vets are at risk of losing their homes through no fault of their own. As NPR's Chris Arnold reports, the Department of Veterans Affairs is working on a fix. Thousands of people with VA loans took what's called a COVID forbearance. That allowed them to skip mortgage payments if they had a financial hardship during the pandemic. But then the VA ended the program that gave them an affordable way to get current on their loans again. Many are now left facing foreclosure. Christy Kelly's an attorney representing some of the homeowners. Service members are going to lose their home. And for most people, that's everything they work for and all their wealth are in their homes. The VA says it was forced to end the program and that a fix is in the works, but that'll take four or five months, which will be too late for many veterans, unless the VA halts foreclosures. Chris Arnold, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 54 points. The Nasdaq fell 30 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The transit community is welcoming the appointment of the state's new transportation secretary. Governor Maura Healey moved Monica Tibbetts not from an interim position to a permanent role this morning. Former Transportation Secretary Jim Aloisi says Tibbetts Nutt is well respected in transit circles. She's a hard worker. She's really smart. And she has very good interpersonal skills. So she really knows how to work well not just within the administration, but with transit advocates and those of us who really care about revitalizing the public transportation system in Massachusetts. Aloisi says he hopes she'll soon address a project to connect the red and blue MBTA lines and electrify the state's regional rail system. A New Hampshire man is among five Army soldiers who were killed in a helicopter accident over the Mediterranean Sea near Cyprus. 26-year-old Tanner Grohn was a member of an elite aviation regiment based in Kentucky. He grew up in Gorham, New Hampshire. The troops were in a Black Hawk helicopter on a routine training mission Friday night when an emergency during the flight led to the copter crashing. The gap in life expectancy for American men and women is at its widest in more than two decades. That's according to new analysis by researchers at Harvard. Life expectancy for women is now nearly six years longer than for the average American man. Brandon Yan is a physician and researcher in the study. He says the change in due is due in part to deaths at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. It made sense given the fact that comorbidities that contribute to higher risk of mortality from COVID-19 are exactly the comorbidities where men experience uh, higher rates of those diseases like obesity, diabetes, and respiratory illness. Yan says opioid overdose deaths among men also contributed to the trend. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is moving his operations to New Hampshire. Politico reports that he's leaving his Iowa head, Ohio headquarters, that is, and moving his campaign staff to New Hampshire and Iowa. Ramaswamy is polling in fifth place in the Granite State at 6%. 41 degrees now in the Boston area overnight tonight. Look for lots of clouds. Temperatures around the mid-30s overnight, I mean, rather, rather tomorrow. Tomorrow should be in the mid-40s with clouds in the morning. Before skies clear in the afternoon, we should see sunshine by midweek around the upper 40s for a high. 41 now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, 
the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The situation in Gaza City seems to be worsening as Israeli ground forces are reportedly engaged in heavy street battles with Hamas fighters. The death toll is now more than 11,000, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Israel says it's trying to rescue hostages and prevent more attacks, like the one last month that killed some 1,200 people. But hospitals and all the medical staff, patients and people seeking shelter in them face dire conditions. The fighting seems to be especially heavy around the city's main hospital, Al-Shifa. On Saturday, Al-Shifa completely ran out of fuel. Gaza's health officials say that two premature babies died as a result. And there are fears that kidney dialysis patients may also begin dying without proper treatment. Doctors Without Borders has medical teams inside Al-Shifa Hospital. They've been in contact with their deputy program manager, Dr. Amber Alayen, who is in Paris. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. So what is the current situation on the ground in Al-Shifa? Like, what are you hearing from your team there right now? It sounds absolutely horrific from what we're hearing. Um, the last contact that... Um, that we'd had from one of our staff um, was along the lines of, please help us, we're, we're, we're being killed. Um, which was from a nurse who was uh, sheltering in the basement with his family. Um, we've had a number of staff who've continued to work there without, without any obligation, but who've just, you know, out of the, the goodness of their hearts as healthcare workers tend to do, stayed right. on and, and continued to work. And um, we're hearing just horror stories from them and we have been for the last um, for the last month. Well, I imagine that all hospitals in Gaza right now must be overwhelmed. What do you know about the situation at other hospitals? It's, it's equally desperate. Um, I know that there are no functional hospitals in the north of Gaza right now. Four of them um, had been hit. Uh, in the last uh, three or four days, and then in the south, the situation is 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 also te- quite terrible. Just because there is um, dwindling fuel supplies, no water, no food for patients. Um, pe- people are arriving in the hospitals looking for shelter. The people who've fle- fled to the south are also saying that it's not safe there. There's still bombings going on in the south. So. Um, We've managed to get some supplies in that we've been sending to the south because we can't even get our teams past the 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 Wadi Gaza line, like the middle of the of the strip. I, I wanted to ask you about that because Israel says it is offering people safe passage from the hospitals, but that Hamas has interfered with that in some cases. What are your people telling you about that? They're telling us that there are snipers and and tanks around the hospital. So. Um, Many of them tried to get into the hospital just to be able to like relieve coworkers um, in the last couple of days, and they haven't been able to go anywhere near it because it, because there are snipers, um, and because of the ongoing fighting, and then the same for the people trying to get out, they haven't been able to. So I can't imagine. And then I, I'd also heard a report today um, about a supposed report about a humanitarian or not a humanitarian, but a corridor safe passage, but. These are people in wheelchairs and hospital beds who have serious, serious trauma. They can't walk out on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, It's impossible. Absolutely. Well, 
of all the urgencies that are simultaneously happening right now, what are the things that are of greatest need at this moment to your colleagues and to the people they're trying to help at these hospitals? I mean, I think first and foremost, water. Um, and then I would go to fuel and, and food. Um, and those are just basic necessities for, for humans to be able to live, um, much less just to be able to run a hospital. Right. And any idea when or, or even if you will be able to get those things? No, I don't. Um, it's, it we just seem like we're kind of hearing a lot of false promises and, and getting a lot of false hope and, and nothing is really, um, nothing is really coming through. And then we've also heard that even if we were to be able to send through um, supplies that the the vehicles on the other side are now out of fuel too. So they couldn't wow. even receive them. That is Dr. There has to be a ceasefire, sorry. Amber Alayen, Deputy Program Manager for Doctors Without Borders, speaking to us from Paris. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Anyone shopping for a home right now has to contend with a combination of high prices and high interest rates. To make matters worse, there are not a lot of homes on the market to choose from. One recent survey found 85% of Americans think it's a bad time to buy a home. So who is taking the plunge? NPR's Scott Horsley reports on a new snapshot from the National Association of Realtors. The snapshot says first-time buyers accounted for about a third of all homes sold during the 12 months ending in June. Lance Zaldivarb and his fiancée started looking for their first home at the beginning of the year, around the time Zaldivar got out of the Marine Corps. He'd managed to sock away some money during his last deployment in Kosovo, and his fiancée also had some savings from her job as a nurse practitioner. My fiancée was a little bit pickier than I am, and at this point now, I'm, I'm glad that she was. She was looking for a little bit of a yard, a little bit larger a square footage inside the house, somewhere that we can uh, raise a family in. The couple found a three-bedroom split level in Montgomery County, Texas, north of Houston, for $245,000, well below the national average. Their mortgage rate will be six and a quarter percent, but they paid up front to get a lower rate for the first two years while Zaldivar finishes his bachelor's degree. I was real happy about that, so that eased my concern compared to some of the other interest rates that, I, that I've seen. Average mortgage rates have since climbed even higher, nearing 8% this fall before settling back to 7.5% last week. Rising interest rates have put homes out of reach for many would-be buyers. They've also discouraged people who already own homes from selling and giving up their cheaper loans. Christina Dunlap says there wasn't much to choose from when she and her husband began looking for a house this year. But after three years of renting in Nashville, the couple was determined to buy a place. We calculated how much we had spent in rent over three years, essentially. And I think that number was a lot scarier than what the interest rates are right now. Dunlap is a freelance marketer, and her husband's a construction manager. They thought about buying a fixer-upper, but decided that was more work than they wanted. So they opted for a newly built home near Springfield, about 25 minutes north of Nashville. The whole neighborhood is still under construction, actually, at the moment. We don't even have paved roads currently. About 13% of all the homes sold this past year were newly built. That's an increase from the year before. Like many successful buyers, Dunlap made trade-offs, moving farther from the center of town and giving up the bonus room she was hoping for. She did get the open floor plan and the two-car garage she wanted, as well as a yard for her dog, Cujo. The yard was a must because when he gets, I call him his zoomies, when he gets those twice a day, we just send him out there and let him run it all out. 
The sales price was just under $350,000, so the Dunlaps needed about $30,000 to cover the 6% down payment and closing cost. According to the Realtor's Report, coming up with a down payment is the biggest challenge for many first-time buyers, especially those who are saddled with high rent and student loans. 70% of all buyers did not have children under 18 living at home. Jessica Louts, who's Deputy Chief Economist at the Realtors Association, says the average income for all home buyers this past year hit a record high, $107,000. That highlights the challenges that middle-income people face in buying a home down payment, finding that right home inventory is still incredibly tight. We know that they have a hard time, especially finding an affordable property, but these home buyers are somehow making it work and getting in there. Lance Zaldivar and his fiance moved into their new house in June and wasted no time unpacking. While the average home buyer plans to stay in a house for 15 years, Zaldivar plans to be there a lot longer. Whenever we do have a family, grandkids, great-grandkids, you know, they can always come over to, to our place and it'll be it'll be a home for, for the Zaldivars. He likes being able to wave to people in his neighborhood and have them smile and wave back. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. One of the Los Angeles area's busiest freeways, Interstate 10, remains completely shut down after a fire this weekend. According to state officials, about 300,000 drivers on average use the freeway every day. And the shutdown is expected to create massive congestion all around downtown L.A. L.A.S. reporter McKenna Sievertson has the latest. Officials are still trying to figure out how long the 10 freeway near downtown L.A. will be closed after a massive fire sparked underneath it in the early hours of Saturday. A hazmat assessment has been completed and engineers are now trying to see if the damage can be repaired or if that stretch of freeway needs to be demolished. Getting the popular roadway up and running again is a priority for the city, says L.A. Mayor Karen Bass. This was a huge fire and the damage will not be fixed in an instant. Engineers have worked all night and are working right now to determine our path forward. The city is encouraging downtown businesses to let their employees work from home. And drivers who need to get around the downtown area are being told to check for alternate routes and prepare for significant delays. Rafael Molina works on traffic operations with Caltrans, the California Department of Transportation. He says congestion was actually lighter than normal Monday morning, but it could be because residents are listening to the warnings. If you don't need to be in downtown LA, I can't stress this enough. Uh, please avoid so, and if you do, please use transit. LA Metro officials say they're increasing the number of trains and buses to help get people to businesses, schools, and work. Stephanie Wiggins is the CEO of LA Metro. She says residents seem to be making use of public transit. Because of last night is any indication, people are listening. Our parking structure at Union Station was full, Mayor, as people were parking at Union Station, getting on the trains. Officials still have not said what sparked the fire. Cal Fire is expected to complete their investigation into that on Monday. But officials warned it could be a while before they share that information publicly. For NPR News, I'm McKenna Sievertson in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, for the first time, the U.S. Supreme Court is adopting a code of ethics for its own justices.
WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga, semesteroff.com, and Endless Energy, helping Massachusetts residents understand their options when faced with aging or inefficient heating systems. Learn how to heat smart at goendlessenergy.com. Modest ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow started the week gaining a little less than two-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ finished on the downside. The S&P lost about a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ dropped two-tenths of a percent. Watertown biotech company Selecta Biosciences is merging with a Maryland-based drug developer. Selecta and Cartesian Therapeutics announced this morning that the new name will be Cartesian, and the company will focus on RNA cell therapies for autoimmune diseases. It's 519. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose and now in Beverly. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. And Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. Clouds to start up the week. The weather should turn warmer and brighter as the week continues, though. For tonight, cloudy, damp, and cold, right about 34 degrees. Tomorrow should start up with clouds before the sunshine pushes them aside for the afternoon. Tomorrow's highs in the mid-40s. Sunny skies stick around for Wednesday, almost reaching 50 degrees. 41 in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For the first time, the U.S. Supreme Court is adopting a code of ethics for the justices. This comes after growing criticism about wealthy benefactors giving gifts and trips to certain justices. There have been revelations that Justice Clarence Thomas received such favors from Harlan Crow, a Republican donor, and others, including Justice Samuel Alito, have also been criticized for their relationships with donors and activists. Public trust in the court has fallen as the revelations pile up. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg has been reading this new ethics code, and she's here in the studio. Hey, Nina. Hey there, Ari. So what is in the code? The headline, I think, is that the code is trying to be relatively specific about what justices can and cannot do, but there's no enforcement mechanism as to what they're supposed not to do. So, for example, the code's very specific about financial transactions. You can have a real estate transaction as long as it's not before the court. And, of course, this code reaffirms the commitment to the disclosure provisions that are in the existing code for all judges and that have not been entirely followed in the past. And it's very specific about family members, spouses, children, grandchildren, and recusal if one of those has a case before the court or is a lawyer before the court. You mentioned spouses. There's been a lot of criticism of Justice Thomas's wife and her activities to promote political causes that end up in the court. Uh, Also, Justice Sotomayor has been criticized for using her staff in setting up 
up her schedule and trips in her book tour. Um, have either of those sorts of cases been addressed in this code? Well, the code says that if a spouse or child living with the justice has a substantial interest in the outcome of a case, financial and any other interest, the justice is supposed to recuse. Now, it would appear that that would mean that Justice Thomas would have had to recuse in matters in which his wife played a major role because she had a political business and was an advocate for political causes. But when it comes to book tours, the code is pretty clear that in scheduling trips, the court, for security reasons, must allow justices to use their office resources in making plans and that they may accept reasonable expense compensation. And the code even specifies that a justice may appear at events where her books are being sold. But you said there is no enforcement mechanism. So what happens if a justice violates these rules? Uh, Really nothing that we know of. There is no enforcement mechanism. The code also makes clear that they shouldn't be speaking at any sort of a fundraising event for a cause that obviously might come before the court. They can attend, but they can't fundraise. So this is a first, but it's also kind of toothless. Are the court's critics satisfied with it? No, they weren't going to be satisfied no matter what. And this doesn't satisfy, I think, some of their critiques, which are for enforcement. So the progressive group Take Back the Court said, with 53 uses of the word should and only six of the word must, the court's new code of ethics reads a lot like a friendly suggestion rather than a binding enforceable guideline. Now, I did talk to Stephen Gillers before we went on the air. He's a leading ethics expert. And he said this is better than he expected, more detailed than he expected, but no enforcement mechanism. And that is the sort of Achilles heel. And PR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg, thank you. Thank you. Sex, celebrity, politics with teeth. That was how the feminist website Jezebel defined itself. And after 16 years, Jezebel shut down last week. Its parent company, Geo Media, said it was restructuring to cope with economic headwinds and a difficult digital advertising environment. Jezebel was a pioneer, publishing pieces about issues of gender and power before they were on the forefront of the digital media landscape. Anna Holmes created the website back in 2007 and joins me now. Hi, Anna. Hi. Let me just start by asking, what has the last week been like for you after the news that Jezebel shut down? You know, I felt a little shocked at first, but I didn't feel really horrible about it because I kept looking at it through the lens of other media In fact, when I started the site, I wasn't sure whether it it would be successful at all. Really? So um, 16 years feels like a a good run. Um, I'm sad about the people who lost their jobs. There was a fair number of them. But as, as one person put it, perhaps Jezebel was a victim of its own success. A lot of the subjects and the tone embedded themselves into the DNA of more traditional or mainstream publications. A lot of the alumni of the site now work at those publications. So it's not that it didn't have an effect on the larger culture. It's just that perhaps it was time for it to end. I want to go back to those early days when you were first hired and creating this blog. At that point, There was really nothing else like it in the media landscape. What was your vision for what ultimately became Jezebel? Hmm. Well, there was my vision, and then there was the vision of the company that hired me's owner, Nick Denton. He wanted a women's website that would, you know, have a scrappy attitude. What I don't think Nick realized was the way in which 
we were going to be explicitly political. And by political, I mean not just around, let's say, electoral politics, but gender politics and around racial politics. I felt very strongly that it was something that we had to lean into, uh, especially because of my experience working at women's magazines uh, in the years preceding the creation of Jezebel. And I had found those women's magazines to be incredibly one-note, heteronormative, they were very white. The magazines didn't reflect the full range of interests of young women. Mm. I was uh, particularly irritated by the ways in which uh, we collectively were teaching young women who they were and how to be. I mean, in many ways, I am a person who really grew up with Jezebel. I think I was a freshman in college when the site launched. And as somebody who knew early on that they wanted to become a journalist or a writer, it was a site that I knew I always had to read for all of the reasons that we've ta been talking about, the themes, the fact that it was irreverent and smart and funny, but felt really relevant to my life. And I know that I'm not alone after seeing all of the tributes that have poured out in recent days and the amount of affection that I felt and still feel for Jezebel. But I want to ask you, how would you describe what Jezebel meant and means to you now? Oh, to me? Yeah. Well... It was meaningful to me because it was an expression of my own feminism and my own frustration around the ways in which young women especially felt reluctant to identify as feminists. I felt that they had been socialized to not do so, thinking that it was somehow a bad word. It was meaningful to me because it was the first time that I had ever done something for myself, which is to say that I had chosen a risky job. I felt that if I did the site in the ways that it needed to be done, that I was probably going to alienate a lot of people in the media and I would never get a job again if it failed. So I was terrified of that. It was meaningful to me because I am a black woman and there were not a lot of depictions of black women in women's media at the time. I felt and still feel that Jezebel had an effect on the culture and not just media and journalism, but on the wider culture. And so, again, for me, there's a certain bittersweetness, but also real joy and a sense of accomplishment. And I would hope that I'm speaking for the staff that was there at the time that I was running the site, for the staff and editors-in-chief who came after me. Again, I think that everyone has a lot to be proud of. Anna Holmes is the founder of Jezebel. Anna, thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. 41 degrees in the Boston area. Could have a few snow flurries here and there before 10 o'clock tonight. Nothing that's going to stay on the ground, though. Overnight lows should be about 34 degrees. Lots of clouds overnight. Then tomorrow, rising to the mid-40s with clouds in the morning. Skies becoming clear by the afternoon. Some sunshine later in the day. And then sunshine again around midweek. Wednesday should have highs in the upper 40s. 41 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. Thanks for joining us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com Comcast Business. Providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. And Donfoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project. At house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time.
I'm Robin Young. Are you finding yourself supporting one side in the war between Israel and Hamas, demonizing the other side, and not liking yourself for it? How to find empathy in a time of hate? Also, Thanksgiving is a little over a week away. Here in our resident chef, Kathy Gunst, has tips and how does she do it? New side dishes. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden and his Chinese counterpart will meet this week for the first time in a year on U.S. soil at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco. The face-to-face meeting on Wednesday comes amid tense relations between the two leaders over a variety of issues ranging from trade to China's ties to Russia, as well as artificial intelligence and human rights violations. Here's White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. President Biden will be doing a lot more than just meeting with President Xi. He'll be welcoming leaders from across the Asia-Pacific for APEC Economic Leaders Week at a moment when the most dynamic economic region in the world is looking to the United States as the leading economy in the world. Sullivan says no major announcements are expected from the summit, but the Biden administration sees it as a way to prevent any further conflict. Workers at Ford's most profitable assembly plant have rejected the tentative agreement negotiated by the UAW, United Auto Workers Union. As Jacob Munoz of Louisville Public Media tells us, it's the first major plant to reject the deal. About 8,700 people work on hourly pay at the Kentucky truck plant in Louisville. A majority of them have said no to a new four-and-a-half-year contract, which would affect about 57,000 employees. The UAW has highlighted certain victories, like cost-of-living adjustments and wage increases, but some other demands, like restoring pensions, weren't met. Jen Thompson works at the Louisville plant. She says she wanted to see post-retirement health care coverage return, among other changes. There were a lot of gains, admittedly, but there were just a few things that I would have liked to have seen in this contract that didn't make it. Thousands more Ford workers still have to vote on the deal, which requires a simple majority to ratify. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Munoz in Louisville. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street ahead of new economic data about inflation from the government. The Dow gained 54 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Andover teachers are prepared to strike for a third day tomorrow as contract negotiations continue between the union and the school district. Teachers began their strike Friday and spent much of the weekend at the bargaining table. Julian DeGloria is the union's vice president and a middle school teacher. He says the sides disagree over salary increases for teachers. The main issue that we are trying to bring forward, that we have brought forward both um, to the committee but also now to the community, is there is a revolving door of new instructional assistance because the pay is so low. In a statement yesterday, Andover administrators say the contracts proposed remain more than $5 million apart. Andover teachers have been without a contract since the start of the school year. Police are warning residents of several Merrimack Valley communities about a string of jewelry thefts in the area. Lowell police say a man and woman stand by a car and strike up a conversation with elderly people who walk by. Then they put fake jewelry on them, steal the jewelry the victims had been wearing, and drive away. 
Police advised people in Lowell, Tingsboro, Chelmsford, Bilreka, and Tewksbury not to engage with the couple and to hide their jewelry when they walk alone. Some state lawmakers think it would be pretty sweet if Massachusetts had an official ice cream flavor. They're holding a hearing today on Beacon Hill on a bill to give cookies and cream that title of the official ice cream of Massachusetts. Representative John Rogers is one of the main sponsors of the bill. He says some Norwood High School students came up with the idea. They noticed that there wasn't an official ice cream flavor. They're the ones that really discovered that, and they're the ones whose research revealed that not only is this mixed-in type of flavor very popular with the people of Massachusetts, but that it was actually invented here a half a century ago. Well, maybe. Several groups claim to have invented the ice cream flavor, including Harold's Ice Cream, which was founded in Somerville. They say they invented cookies and cream ice cream in 1973. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Clouds around tonight, just a little bit above freezing overnight. Tomorrow should start cloudy and then sunshine should move in around 46 degrees for a high. 41 in Boston, it's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI. Dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including homeless shelters, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery with an exception. It declares, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist except as punishment for a crime. Prison rights advocates say that exception, which also exists in 16 state constitutions, allows forced labor in prisons. And there is a growing movement across the country to get rid of it. As NPR's Meg Anderson reports, advocates in the first state to change its constitution are struggling to make the change on paper a reality in prison. Richard Lagrassi has been in prison in Colorado for the last 20 years. Hello, can you hear me? I can, can you hear me okay? A few months into the pandemic, he got called to work in his prison's kitchen. It was hot and crowded, and after about two months, he noticed he was having trouble sleeping. I was always anxious about having to go to the kitchen and work under these conditions for hours and hours and not knowing when I was going to be able to go back to my unit and get some rest. Lagrassi has a history of PTSD, and he kept asking for breaks from the job. Eventually, the guards stopped making him go to the kitchen, but Lagrassi says they also punished him. He says he was moved to a unit with less access to the outdoors and to phones, and he lost earned time for good behavior. His experience is typical. Most people in prison work. In prison kitchens, in DMV call centers. They make license plates, furniture for schools, hand sanitizer during COVID. 
In 14 states, prisoners fight wildfires, like the man in this story from member station KQED in California. It's rugged. I mean, a lot of mountains, a lot of rough terrain, then the thick brush, the heat. Three quarters of prison workers say they're required to do those jobs. That's according to the most recent data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. The reality is, once people enter the prison gates, they lose the right to refuse to work. Jennifer Turner is a human rights researcher at the ACLU. She says prisoners often make less than a dollar an hour, sometimes doing hard or dangerous work. And most of the labor laws protecting people outside of prison do not apply inside. She says it's common for inmates to be punished if they refuse to work. These punishments include solitary confinement, denying them the right to see their families or to call home, stripping them of personal property, and also denying them the opportunity to reduce their time of incarceration. So what Lagrassi experienced was pretty common nationwide, except that he was in Colorado. We continue covering Colorado First for you tonight at 5. The state just abolished slavery. And two years earlier, in 2018, Colorado changed its state constitution to say no one could be forced to work, including people behind bars. Up until today, Colorado's constitution allowed slavery as a form of punishment for a crime. It was the first state to do so. Kamau Allen was one of the lead organizers of that effort. At first, it it didn't feel real. The night the amendment passed, after the parties died down... I got in my car and I cried. I cried because I realized that we just made history. Six other states have followed Colorado, and at least nine others have introduced bills. Nevada residents will vote on this in 2024. Allen had high hopes, but then... A member of my church came up to me and said, you know, we're, we're so happy that this passed. But my nephew, who's serving time right now, wants to know why, after this has passed, he's still forced to work against his will. And that was one of the moments when the reality kicked in that this is a long, long process. Advocates of ending forced prison labor say that in the states that made these changes, the daily lives of people behind bars look pretty much like they did before. Records from Colorado's Department of Corrections show that since 2019, the year after the amendment, more than 14,000 prisoners have been written up for failing to work. Hundreds of them were reprimanded, they were assigned more work, or lost privileges. What's happening here is you have statutes on the books that require work, and the state is saying, no, that's not involuntary servitude, that's something else. Valerie Collins is a lawyer representing Richard Lagrassi in a lawsuit against Colorado. The lawsuit claims that the state is violating its constitution. The state argues it's not punishing people for not working, but instead it's taking away privileges. It seems relatively cut and dry to us, but they're kind of doing this like logical gymnastics to try to make it fit. A spokesperson for the Colorado Department of Corrections declined to comment due to the pending lawsuit. When this passed in Colorado, there was concern that changing prison labor policies might affect things like community service, which is aimed at rehabilitating inmates. Michael Gibson Light, a professor at the University of Denver, thinks there's another reason why prison labor is difficult to dismantle. It takes a lot of bodies to maintain those institutions. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to literally maintain the physical infrastructure 
of these spaces. Much of that work, cooking, cleaning, laundry, groundskeeping, is done by the people being held there for little and sometimes no pay. And so if we tomorrow were to sort of flip the switch and say, okay, no one has to work, I suspect that part of the fear is that if too many people then don't work, these entire institutions can't run the way that they currently run. Research shows prison workers produce at least $11 billion a year in goods and services across the country. And their labor offsets the cost of the prison system. Government officials have said as much. In Florida, a former county commissioner said there was no way the state could take care of its prisons without prison labor. In California, the Department of Finance warned changing its state constitution could force it to pay prisoners minimum wage, which would cost taxpayers $1.5 billion a year. But Allen, the Colorado organizer, says the cost isn't just financial. It's also a human cost. We had this conversation back in the 1860s that, oh, abolishing slavery would be too costly for our economy. I don't think anybody now would disagree that that was a price worth paying. The community organizers that led the original campaign in Colorado are now regrouping. They say their work is not done. Meg Anderson, NPR News. And tomorrow on All Things Considered, we look ahead to this year's holiday travel season. It's expected to be busier than ever, and Southwest Airlines is trying to avoid the chaos of last year when system failures led to thousands of flight cancellations. They are making a lot of moves to try to get ahead of this for Christmas. I'm just not sure um, everything's going to be in place if there's a big uh, meltdown like there was last year. So what's being done? Well, you're going to have to find out tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen online, on the radio, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. All Things Considered from NPR News. Falls are the number one cause of death from injury among people 65 and older, responsible for about 40,000 deaths a year in the U.S. Loss of strength is a well-known risk factor, but it turns out that loss of hearing can also put people at risk. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on research showing how hearing aids may help. When Catherine Jewett began to lose hearing in one ear, she did not want to withdraw from conversations or have people sense that she was less engaged. So sometimes she would just fake it. My tendency I found is to put a smile on my face and when people look at me like, did you hear that, you know, shake my head yes. She says a lot of people view hearing aids as a mark of age, so they hesitate. But she realized that she needed to start wearing one. Because they say that... Your social connections are your most important thing for keeping you sane and mentally balanced as you get older. And mental balance wasn't her only concern. She was also worried about physical balance. She had experienced a few falls, and research shows that older adults with hearing loss have about a two and a half times greater risk of falls compared to peers who have normal hearing. 
Laura Campos is an audiologist at UC Health in Colorado who wanted to understand this connection better. So she and her collaborators decided to do a study. We surveyed about 300 people who had hearing loss, had known hearing loss, so had come into our hospital clinic and had a hearing test. We surveyed those individuals about their hearing aid use, their previous falls. And through a fall risk questionnaire, they determined who was at risk. She says what they found wasn't totally surprising. People who had hearing aids and were in the habit of wearing them consistently were less likely to fall. So we found really quite significantly that individuals that wore hearing aids compared to those that didn't did show a significantly lower prevalence of falls. So they reported fewer falls in general. And there was an even lower risk of falls among people who wore their hearing aids for at least four hours a day. The size of the effect did surprise me to a certain extent. Our consistent users were anywhere from about 55 to 65 percent lower odds of either experiencing a fall or being at risk for falls. It's not exactly clear why hearing loss is linked to a higher risk of falls, but Campos says there are several possible explanations. For starters, we use our hearing to help sense what's around us. If we close our eyes, we can sense whether we're in a big auditorium compared to, say, a small closet, based on the sound bouncing off walls and objects around us. Human physiology studies show that humans can echolocate, but we require the use of high frequencies to be able to do that. So if hearing is restored with the use of hearing aids, it's possible the ability to use echolocation is improved as well. Catherine Jewett says she feels safer when she wears her hearing aid since she can hear the sounds of a car, for instance, if she's crossing a street, and she says she feels more stable on her feet. And the other benefit to me is that it improves my balance. I mean, I have to tell you, a hearing aid has just made a massive amount of difference in my life. She says for her, wearing this small device leads to big results. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Boston's a big music town. Major acts play the big venues like MGM Music Hall or TD Garden. But there's also a lot of local talent and smaller theaters and clubs with live music every night. Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you want to catch live music around Boston, you've got your pick of genres. There's a thriving hip-hop scene with local artists like Sean Wire. Jack 
jazz at places like Wally's, Scullers, or the Beehive. A lively Irish folk scene in pubs across the city. Not to mention reggae and the underground punk scene. Check out our guide to arts and culture in Boston for where to find your vibe in the city. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. This afternoon, we have the latest of our third act stories about people who've worked full careers and have reinvented themselves later in life, often in surprising and inspirational ways. In 1967, an all-girl band burst onto the San Francisco rock and roll scene. They were called Ace of Cups. They attracted a big following and even got a rave review from Jimi Hendrix. But within a few years, the Ace of Cups disappeared. WBR's Anthony Brooks reports on how the members' third act brought them back together again after more than 50 years. This is a song from the Ace of Cups 2018 debut album. The band members are all women, well into their 70s. The story of the Ace of Cups begins in San Francisco back in 1966. I had been in other bands before, and I was the only female in the band. Back then, Denise Kaufman, who sings and plays harmonica and guitar, met guitarist Mary Simpson Mercy in Haight-Ashbury and began jamming. You know, we had so much fun then. She said, you know, my friends and I are starting an all-girl band. And my first reaction was, well, that sounds really weird. I'd never seen it. I'd never thought of it, truly. Kaufman says there were plenty of women singers back then, but they fronted bands that were made up of men. An all-girl band that played barefoot and rocked their own instruments? That was something different. Along with Kaufman and Mercy, the Ace of Cups included Mary Gannon, who played bass, and drummer Diane Vitalich. In tapes from the 60s of their practice sessions and performances, you can hear their energy as they embrace folk, soul, and unbound rock and roll. Along with edgy grooves and sharp songwriting. The Ace of Cups were talented, fun, and irreverent. They gained a big following around San Francisco and shared the stage with some of the biggest names in rock and roll. We were just living sort of a dream in a way. Guitarist Mary Simpson Mercy recalls seeing Jimi Hendrix for the first time at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. I've never heard anything like this. When he set his guitar on fire at the end, I couldn't believe it because I had learned that you always treat your guitar with respect. So when he did that, I just thought, oh, my God, he's flipped out. You know, <laughs> something's gone terribly wrong. <laughs> A week later, at Golden Gate Park, the Ace of Cups opened for Hendrix, who later called the band Groovy 
and raved about guitarist Mary Simpson Mercy, saying she played like hell. I dreamt about him for three years after that, and I changed the way I played bard chords because of Jimi Hendrix, because he put his thumb over the sixth string. Do you still play it like that, in that Hendrix way? Yes, I do. Ace of Cups opened for Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, and the band, but they never made a record back then. Mary Gannon says record companies expressed interest, but never offered them a contract. You know, I think that they weren't quite sure what to do with us, how they're going to market us. Denise Kaufman says sexism had a lot to do with it. Even landing gigs could be a challenge, like when they tried to book San Francisco's Peppermint Lounge. Our manager called there and talked to the booking guy, and he goes, yeah, all-girl band, absolutely, but they have to play topless. Oh, my God. And I said, you call him back and tell him, we won't play topless, but we'll play naked. They didn't play naked, but by 1972, Kaufman says the band was pretty much done. Well, we started having children, so that kind of changes your whole situation if you want to even go out of town for a gig. For too long, a little bitty baby gonna be born, life in your So they moved on with their lives. Mary Simpson Mercy lived off the grid for a while and eventually became a mental health counselor. Denise Kaufman started a school in Hawaii, worked as an EMT, and became a yoga instructor. Mary Gannon found the transition difficult. Being a single parent, which it turned out I was, on food stamps, trying to get little jobs here and there, was very, very hard. I was pretty lost when the band stopped playing because that was really my dream of everything, the band. Eventually, Gannon got a degree in special education and launched a new career, but the dream never died. The band continued to get together now and then until finally George Wallace of High Moon Records heard them and offered them, yes, a recording contract. And in 2018, more than 50 years after they first played together, the Ace of Cups finally released their debut album. What are you all going to play for us today? We're going to play our song, Feel Good. Awesome. (laughs) I can't wait to hear it. It's Ace of Cups. Yes. Feel Good. Suddenly, the band was on NBC's Today Show. Older and grayer, perhaps. Three of them are grandmothers, but still playing with energy from a half a century ago. There's a whole lot of people trying to mess with your mind. You were just a little child. They filled you in with every sin they could find. Telling you it's wrong to want my good loving. One way for you to know for sure. Working in the studio was just the most incredible thing to happen to us at this time. In some ways, it was just as incredible as what happened back in the 60s. (laughs) That's Mary Simpson Mercy. The debut album includes appearances by Taj Mahal, Buffy St. Marie, and Bob Weir of The Grateful Dead. Denise Kaufman was thrilled to have their music finally out in the world. We had nothing to show except for some posters. We never got to go in the studio with our music and create it. It was like having children that never got to be out in the world and play. Some of our third act stories are about people who reinvent themselves late in life because they're not ready to stop working. Some are about people who have no choice but to keep working. This story is about musicians who use their third act to reconnect with their past and fulfill a dream. Walk that line 
Every day I don't think I'm gonna get away What I say, what I bring It's a choice that changes everything Gonna reap what I sow Denise used to say on stage, she said, we're from the 60s, in our 60s, when we first started gigging again, which I loved. Again, Mary Gannett. I think there is new possibilities there to really make that last third of your life really as good as it can be, and not to remember the old things of the past about what an old person should do, should be, should look like. It's something to look forward to now. Since their debut album, Ace of Cups, have released a second album and an EP. So they're still rocking well into their third act. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. If you have reinvented your life in a surprising way, we want to hear from you. Email us at thirdactstory at gmail.com. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to use strong passwords and a password manager. CISA.gov slash Secure Our World. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. This is NPR. WBUR supporters include Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. And Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. Goodnewsgarage.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Another possible government shutdown looms ahead. The proposed congressional spending plan on the table now leaves out military aid for Ukraine and Israel. What else is out and in so far coming up? Today is Monday, November 13th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, overdose deaths among teenagers have skyrocketed due largely to fentanyl. For decades, kids were taught to just say no to drugs, but experts say it's better just to give students the facts. So the most important tenet of drug education is to be honest. We cannot lie, we cannot exaggerate to teens. Drugs education in the age of fentanyl coming up. Also, move over Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Steve Colbert, and the rest. Stand-up comedian Taylor Tomlinson will soon make her debut in late-night TV. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Supreme Court is adopting a code of ethics for its justices, a first amid mounting criticism of gifts and trips from wealthy benefactors to certain justices. But as NPR's Amanda Bastille reports, while the court is trying to be more specific about what justices can and cannot do, there's no enforcement mechanism as to what they're supposed not to do. The code is specific about financial transactions, including real estate transactions, as long as they're not before the court. And the code is specific about family members and recusal if one of those relatives has a case before the court or is a lawyer before the court. But the code also makes exceptions for justices that may not apply to lower court judges. For example, a justice doesn't have to recuse if his or her relative files a friend of the court brief because the court gets so many of these briefs. The code is unlikely to satisfy critics of the court. The Supreme Court watchdog Fix the Courts said in a statement that the code leaves, quote, much to be desired. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. President Biden sat down today with Indonesian President Joko Widodo at the White House. Indonesia is a key player in Southeast Asia and is the world's third largest democracy after India and the U.S. The meeting coming a day before Biden leaves for San Francisco to attend the annual Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting, known as APEC. Biden is also slated to meet later this week with Chinese President Xi Jinping. As members of the United Auto Workers Union vote on whether to ratify their tentative new contracts, the union's already looking ahead. It has plans to expand to non-union auto plants, including foreign automakers in the South, notably Tesla. More from NPR's Camila Dominoski. Patty Ellison is a UAW member at a warehouse in Michigan, and she has a rallying cry for anyone who's jealous of the UAW's big raises. Well, join the union. The UAW hopes that message resonates at plants across the country. One big prize would be Tesla, the rapidly growing American automaker and EV pioneer. The company's CEO, Elon Musk, is firmly opposed to the UAW. The company has used methods both legal and illegal to stop unionization, according to a federal agency. And Tesla workers get stock options, which can be lucrative and make it harder to compare to union wages. Musk has all but dared the union to try to organize its workers again. And by all indications, the UAW plans to take that dare. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump's civil trial resumed today in New York with his son Don Jr. back on the witness stand. Defense lawyers questioning Trump's eldest son on various aspects of his father's real estate empire. The judges already determined Trump's businesses and private holdings were fraudulently inflated. At issue in his civil trial is what penalty Trump's business empire should have to pay for that. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow up 54 points. The Nasdaq fell 30 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. New Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation Monica Tibbetts-Nutt wants to incentivize cities and towns to build more housing. Tibbetts-Nutt has served as secretary on an interim basis for a couple of months. Today, Governor Maura Healey officially named her transportation secretary. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Tibbetts Nut says kickstarting regional rail, repairing roads and bridges, and fixing slow zones on the T are among her top priorities. She told WBUR's radio Boston cities and towns that allow more housing development will get first dibs on big projects. We need to make sure that we're making the investments in the communities that want to build housing. We are going to put the money as DOT in the places that have done the things that need to be done and where the residents are actually living. Tibbetts Nutt says it's important that low- and middle-income people be able to afford to live in places with good public transportation options. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The state hopes to get hundreds of migrants who live in emergency shelters authorized for work in the next week. Today, state officials and the Department of Homeland Security opened a clinic to expedite the often protracted process of getting permission to work. Kate Freilich works with immigrants who live in state shelters as part of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. She says getting new arrivals into the workforce will ease pressure on the state shelter system. And that will lead to them being able to find stable housing outside of the shelter system. We are all aware that we have a housing shortage and affordability crisis in Massachusetts, and that is very real. And so other supports are going to be needed as well. Last week, the state reported it ran out of emergency shelter space and began a waitlist process for families. Emerson College's resident assistants are working to form a union. This morning, a group of RAs delivered a letter to the administration that asks for voluntary recognition of the union. The students say they're hoping for more compensation, better workloads and on-call responsibilities, and better communication channels with Emerson leadership. An Emerson spokesperson told WBUR that the college is not yet ready to comment on the matter. Tufts University RAs formed their own union earlier this year. And a Worcester Polytechnic Institute researcher is receiving a federal grant of more than a million dollars to develop a new technology to help premature babies. The first-of-its-kind Band-Aid-like device will help parents monitor their preemies' oxygen levels at home. The technology will also correct the measurement to account for variations in skin color. Many currently available technologies underestimate low oxygen level rates in patients who have pigmented skin. 40 degrees in the Boston area, lots of clouds overnight tonight. Tomorrow should be warmer and a little bit brighter. Clouds in the morning, but then sunshine by the afternoon. Temperatures reaching the mid-50s, mid-40s that is. Then sunny skies around for Wednesday, almost reaching 50 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6 WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A spending plan is more than just a financial document. It's essentially a statement of values, right? Spelling out what you're willing to invest in and what you are not. Over the weekend, the new Speaker of the House unveiled his plan to fund the government. The full House is expected to vote on it tomorrow. And if Congress doesn't agree on something by the end of this week, the government will shut down. Well, Speaker Mike Johnson's proposal would temporarily extend funding for some federal agencies until late January and others through early February. But one of the most surprising things about the proposal is what it leaves out military aid for Ukraine and Israel. Susan Glasser has written in The New Yorker about the Biden administration's effort to arm Ukraine's military, and she's here to talk about this Republican proposal. Good to have you back. Thank you so much. We don't know whether this plan will pass. Some Republicans have already come out against it. But are you surprised that the Speaker of the House would propose a package that does not include military support for two major U.S. allies, Ukraine and Israel? Well, it is pretty remarkable. But, uh, you know, remember that this new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, uh, is not only the least experienced Speaker of the House in 140 years, but has a record of voting against uh, military aid for Ukraine ever since the Russian invasion in uh, February of last year. So, you know, it's consistent with his own personal beliefs. And more strikingly, it, it, it reflects, I think, the direction of travel where the House Republican conference, which is much 
Trumpier, if you will, much more part of the kind of America first neo-isolationist wing of the Republican Party than even the Senate Republicans who've remained committed uh, to supporting Ukraine in its fight. Well, the White House has been pushing back against this proposal. Here's what uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said at a briefing today. The United States national interest will be deeply harmed if we are not able to secure and sustain funding for Israel, Ukraine, the Indo-Pacific and the border. Now, as you say, the speaker has opposed Ukraine funding from very early on. But but is there something to the Republican argument that after more than a year of fighting in Ukraine, there needs to be some kind of plan for how this ends as the U.S. keeps handing over billions of dollars? Well, I would say that what's very striking is just the abrupt uh, reversals and the lack of ability for the United States right now to make and honor long-term commitments to its foreign policy. President Biden from last year on has said that the United States would be supporting Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes. But in reality, uh, our politics makes it uh, almost impossible to make that kind of commitment. Donald Trump is not only the Republican frontrunner for 2024, but were he to come back to office, I don't think there's anyone who thinks that the United States would maintain its commitment uh, to Ukraine. The U.S. can no longer be trusted to uphold its long-term commitments. What does that mean broadly geopolitically if America's allies can no longer count on total backing from the people in Congress who control the purse strings. Well, I think it's a very significant factor, uh, really, in international politics today, Ari. I just spent uh, a week in Berlin uh, earlier this month. And, you know, this is what the, the German government and other Western allies of the United States are very concerned about, is, uh, you know, the, the long-term viability of their partnership with the United States. Obviously, Donald Trump would have a very different policy toward Germany in particular, NATO in general, not just Ukraine and Russia. So I think it's the inconstancy of the American superpower that is its own geopolitical risk right now. And just briefly, uh, I wonder if you could say what this would mean for the military effort in Ukraine and Israel. What would it mean for those wars if this package were to pass? Well, you know, uh, I noticed Bloomberg quoting a, a Pentagon spokesperson the other day saying there's only $1 billion left in the U.S. military assistance to Ukraine. Ukraine is still in the middle of an ongoing counteroffensive against a Russian uh, invader. So it's yeah. very significant uh, if the U.S. just runs out of steam to support Ukraine. Susan Glasser of The New Yorker, thank you so much. Thank you. You might remember this public service announcement involving an egg and a frying pan. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. I totally remember that one. For decades, kids were told to just say no to drugs. But research has long shown that this approach alone doesn't work. And now, overdose deaths among teenagers have skyrocketed, largely due to the highly potent opioid known as fentanyl. As Lee Gaines from member station WFYI reports, experts say there is a better way to teach students about drugs, and the need is more urgent than ever. So as I go through this, I'll show you some slides, of course. But if you have any questions at any point in time, always just feel free to ask Cameron McNeely stands at the front of a lecture hall at Perry Meridian High School in Indianapolis. He's giving a presentation called, This is Not About Drugs. Uh, that sounds pretty ironic. McNeely is an educator with the nonprofit Overdose Lifeline. So I don't want you to get the idea that we are talking about choice. Yes or no, well, I won't I use drugs. McNeely explains that addiction is a disease, how different drugs affect the body, and that about 93,000 people lost their lives to an overdose in 2020. Okay, so let me ask you another question before I move on. 
He asks which drugs students think cause the most overdoses. Specific drug. Crack. Crack, Okay, lots of good guesses here. None of the students got the right answer. Fentanyl, a drug that's killing more and more teens every year. In fact, the number of teen overdose deaths related to fentanyl nearly tripled from 2019 to 2021. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Many died from taking fentanyl-laced counterfeit pills. Experts say drug education could help save lives when it's done right. We know that from years of research, just saying, no, don't do this, don't take this drug, does not work. That's Bonnie Halpern-Felsher of Stanford University. She studies health-related decision-making among adolescents and young adults. She says a better strategy is to give students the facts. Here is what that sounds like in Cameron McNeely's presentation. So opioids work, they're designed to slow our bodies down. Slow our nervous systems down, slow our respiratory system down, right? slow our breathing down. McNeely explains what an overdose looks like and how you can save someone's life with naloxone, an opioid overdose reversal medicine often sold under the brand name Narcan. But Narcan buys time, which is the most important thing I have in an overdose. This lesson is a far cry from the drug education some listeners may remember, like the D.A.R.E. program, which began in the 1980s. It told kids to just say no to drugs, a message that was repeated in television PSAs. The bottom line is stay away from drugs, but do it because you care about yourself. And cheesy songs like this one from crime dog Scruff McGruff. It is clear that just saying no is not sufficient. That's Nora Volkoff. She's the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She says the drug education of the past wasn't honest with teens, like exaggerating the risks of cannabis use. It was taken to an extreme because a lot of people know others that take marijuana and they are functioning and they don't see any evidence of field effects. But now teens are dying after taking pills they thought were Adderall or Percocet, but turn out to be fentanyl-laced counterfeits. They actually taught us when we were children, if you cry wolf too many times, when the wolf really comes, no one is paying attention. And this is, I fear, where we are a little bit with the fentanyl. Volkov says there's evidence to suggest high-quality drug education can prevent drug use, but that's not what many students are getting. Halpern Felscher at Stanford University is trying to change that. Her lab has a comprehensive curriculum for high schoolers called Safety First. It addresses both the risks and the benefits of drugs. We cannot lie, we cannot exaggerate to teens. The curriculum explains doctors can use opioids to treat pain, but if you use them improperly or take someone else's medication, you run the risk of becoming addicted or overdosing. Halpern Felscher says it's important to tell teens not to use drugs at all. But if they are using or if they're in situations where they might be used, we are just trying to keep them safe. It's an approach known as harm reduction. It includes strategies like don't mix drugs and test them for things like fentanyl beforehand. It also covers how to take care of someone who is overdosing. They know how to put somebody into the position on their side so that way they can breathe and they don't vomit and choke on their vomit. Halpern Felscher knows that some people might interpret harm reduction as encouraging teens to use drugs, but she says that's a misperception. The most important piece of this curriculum is 
not to use. Halpern Felscher says this curriculum isn't a cure-all. Educators, families, and communities need to start having honest conversations about drug use. And until we do, you know, just having a 50-minute class on fentanyl is not going to be the sole defining moment for anybody. But she says it's a start. For NPR News, I'm Lee Gaines in Indianapolis. There's a bright new object shining in the night sky, and you only need binoculars to see it. But it's not your typical heavenly body. Nope. Earlier this month, NASA astronauts Laurel O'Hara and Jasmine Mogbelli were doing repairs at the International Space Station when a tool bag accidentally slipped off into space. This isn't the first time astronauts have lost track of something up there. In 2006, NASA astronaut Piers Sellers was using a spatula to apply heat-resistant slime to the Discovery Space Shuttle, and he reportedly told his fellow astronauts, That was my favorite spatch. Don't tell the other spatulas. (laughs) The spatch burned up in Earth's atmosphere about four months later, and this tool bag will likely meet the same fate. But for now, you can see it orbiting Earth using just a pair of binoculars. It's a little ahead of the space station, which you can locate using an online tool from NASA. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's all things considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Modest ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow started the week gaining a little less than two-tenths of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq finished on the downside. The S&P lost a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq dropped two-tenths of a percent. The state Senate is advancing a plan to build a professional soccer stadium in Everett. The provisions included in a supplemental budget measure the Senate filed today. It would allow land that's currently home to a shuttered power plant to be used for a new stadium for the New England Revolution. The team currently plays its games at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough. House and Senate negotiators are set to hash out differences between their budget proposals this week. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries, with contemporary art at auction November 16th, featuring paintings, sculpture, and limited editions from artists like Kahinde Wiley, Nan Golden, Alex Katz, and Keith Herring. Catalog, bidding, and exhibition information at swangalleries.com and on the Swan app. Tonight, the Celtics try to make it three straight wins. They take on the New York Knicks at the Garden. Celts are so far undefeated at home. Tip-off time is set for 7.30. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. The news from Israel continues to change quickly. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this moment between Israel 
and Hamas in Gaza. Keep listening to WBUR. A lot of clouds around this evening. Could see a few snow flurries before 10 o'clock tonight. Nothing that should stay on the ground, though. Overnight lows about 34 degrees. Tomorrow should rise to the mid-40s with clouds in the morning. Clearing skies by the afternoon. Then a lot of sunshine by midweek around the upper 40s for a high on Wednesday. This is WBUR at 621. WBUR supporters include Endless Energy, a certified AeroSeal installer designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. GoEndlessEnergy.com and La Cuchara, serving modern Latin American fare at the Melrose Cafe and now a new location with table service open in Beverly. Drop-off lunch catering available. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Around the world, plastic waste is spiraling out of control. This week in Kenya, countries are gathering to work on a U.N. treaty to deal with the issue. NPR's Julia Simon reports the fossil fuel industry wants to have a big say in solutions. Around 400 million tons of plastic goes into the environment each year. Bethany Carney Almroth is professor at University of Gothenburg in Sweden. She puts the problem this way. Plastic is in every single environment on the entire planet, from the deepest oceans to the atmosphere to human bodies. It's everywhere. Around 150 countries are meeting in Nairobi to figure out how to deal with this. They don't all agree, says Charles Goodart at Economist Impact. He says on one side... There are those that want the plastics treaty to focus on the waste collection and recycling. But recycling has never really worked. Less than 10% of plastic is recycled globally. It's energy intensive and lots of plastic waste can't be recycled at all. So Goddard says on the other side are countries, environmental groups and scientists pushing another argument. To concentrate on the life cycle of plastics, that includes the production of plastics. Basically, they want to cap the amount of new plastic companies produce. Goddard says not everybody's a fan of that. Unsurprisingly, those countries and those companies that are engaged in the production of uh, plastics and in the production of fossil fuels. Most plastics are made from planet-heating fossil fuels like oil and gas. Demand for oil for cars and trucks is projected to fall as people buy more electric vehicles. That's why many in the oil industry see plastics and other petrochemicals as key for the future of their business. Marcos Orellana was appointed by the UN to monitor toxics and human rights. He says industry is pushing recycling-based solutions at the treaty talks to take the focus away from cutting new plastic production. It signals an attempt, one would say, of escaping strict controls and the reduction of plastic and instead uh, trying to keep business as usual. Orellana says plastic credits are one proposed solution that would allow companies to keep doing business as usual. It's being discussed at the negotiations. And basically, plastic credits would allow companies to help pay for projects that remove waste or recycle. Vera is a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit working on plastic credits, and they're at these treaty negotiations. Vera spokesperson Joel Finkelstein says cutting new plastic production is important, but the plastic credits could help funnel much-needed money to waste removal and recycling projects. It's not like there's some big pool of money existing to clean this up, right? 
Vera was founded in 2007, and it's known for its work with carbon offsets. Its founding members included trade groups that represented major oil companies, among other corporations. When asked about these ties, Finkelstein says it makes sense to talk to big emitting companies that want to take action on climate. I don't think that's a smoking gun. It's something we're proud of, that this is a way to unlock finance. As for plastics, Finkelstein says he thinks Vera should work aggressively with anyone on solutions, while also pushing for integrity. I question whether people would be willing to let plastic stay in the environment for the moral good of not engaging with people they don't like. I don't think we have the time or the ability to wait for that. In Kenya this week, how to reduce new plastic and recycled plastics will be central to the negotiations. So will questions over the role of governments and industries. Winnie Lau leads a project at the Pew Charitable Trusts to keep plastics out of oceans. She says cutting pollution will require a lot of different solutions and plenty of oversight. If you don't have the right accountability mechanism in place, they could be designed to not work at all and sometimes could make the problem worse. The U.N. hopes to have the plastic treaty all finalized next year. Julia Simon, NPR News. And NPR's Michael Copley contributed reporting. The late night TV landscape will change significantly early next year when comic Taylor Tomlinson debuts as host of a new show called After Midnight. It'll air weeknights on CBS after The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Colbert's also an executive producer on After Midnight. And when he announced Tomlinson's new hosting gig on The Late Show, Tomlinson admitted that as a rising comic who just turned 30, she's not a household name yet. So if you don't know who I am, don't worry, I barely know myself. Here to talk about how Tomlinson's rise might change the face of late night television is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hey, Eric. Hi. Hi. So I have never personally heard of Taylor Tomlinson until this very interview with you. <laughs> so just tell us, who is she and where might people already know her from? Sure. Well, if you're not a comedy nerd, you might not know who she is. She's a rising comedy star with two well-regarded stand-up specials on Netflix. She's been doing stand-up comedy since she was 16 years old, and wow. she's appeared on these podcasts by older, more established comics like uh, Pete Holmes or Neil Brennan, who kind of signaled that she was a legit, funny stand-up. And choosing her makes a lot of sense for CBS because the network is worried about how ratings are dropping for late night shows and in particular, young people tuning out. And she's also gained a large following through videos of her stand-up posted on social media outlets like Instagram and TikTok. And we've got a clip. Let's listen. My college boyfriend was sleeping with sex workers behind my back or prostitutes if you're old and don't know that word's not okay to use anymore. <laughs> Sometimes older crowd members can get confused. Is that what my granddaughter does on Instagram? And you're like, no, 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 she's just hot. That's a fab fit fun box. That's a different. Yeah, and yeah, I had to look up what a fab fit fun box is. But what is she that? Kn okay. <laughs> she knows social media. She can tell jokes that cover a wide generational span. She ticks a lot of boxes for CBS. Okay, I guess that's good box. to hear. <laughs> I mean, does it also matter that she's a woman, Eric? I mean, given all the Johns and Stevens hosting late night shows these days. Oh, for sure. I mean, depending on who's chosen as the permanent host for The Daily Show, Tomlinson could be the only woman hosting a major late night show on TV next year. I mean, she'll be debuting as many shows with female hosts like Samantha Bee and Z-Way and Amber Ruffin have either been cut back or canceled. And she's likely going to be the youngest late night host on TV, testing if these shows can still appeal to young people who have largely turned away from traditional broadcast or cable TV for online platforms. Right. 
Well, I also heard that After Midnight won't be like a typical late night talk show, right? Yeah, it's going to be a new version of a game show called At Midnight that aired for a while on Comedy Central. It basically features three comics playing these social media-themed games. And, you know, again, for CBS, this makes sense. It's cheap to produce. The subject matters about the online platforms that young people are already using. And the games will be easy to put up online for viral videos. Wait, but I have to ask, I mean, what does this say about the future of late night that... CBS had the chance to create a new talk show and instead just revive an old game show. Well, I got to say, that's what worries me as a fan of late night TV. I mean, rather than figure out how to make something new and different, they recycled an old idea. Yeah. And there's a lot of producers on this project, including Colbert's manager and his wife. And humor by committee can be tough. <laughs> you know, I just hope when the show debuts early next year, they find some new dimensions to this idea and chart a new course for late night entertainment because the late night genre really needs one. Totally. That is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf showroom and test kitchen, where you can cook on Wolf appliances to make informed selections. More at ClarkLiving.com. And the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events.